Well, once again, it is my great joy to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I would like to do so this morning by having you take your Bibles and turning, first of all, to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 and put your finger in that spot. And then turn to Luke chapter 2, where I'm going to read the first seven verses. And as you might imagine, we're going to use Micah 5.2 to introduce Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. But I want to read Luke's account here in these first seven verses to prepare our hearts for an exposition that will at last, last at least two Sundays. I don't know, I may have to go into three, but this will be part one. I want to talk with you about the birth of the Messiah King. So let's look at what the Spirit of God has for us through his inspired author, Luke, in Luke 2. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Christmas is indeed an exhilarating season of the year for the redeemed, for those of us who know and love Christ because it is a time when we can reflect upon all of the great truths that center around the gospel. It's a time where we can share with the world the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth to save sinners. And it's also a time when we can share with the world that he is coming again to judge the nations, to judge all who reject him and ultimately establish his long-promised glorious kingdom, a time when the church will rule and reign with him, when the nation of Israel will finally worship the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and experience the, the prosperity and the security in their promised land, all consistent with the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, a time when David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will fulfill God's promise to David, remember in 2 Samuel 7, he said that his house and his kingdom shall endure before me forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And you may recall that the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1.32 that your son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom 
will have no end. Oh, dear friends, how I long to see my Savior and my King. I hope you share that passion with me. How I long to be revealed with him in his second coming, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 4. And also to be able to reign with him for a thousand years in Revelation 20 and verse 6. In fact, in Colossians 3, you will recall that the Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And that is certainly my intention this morning. With the world gone mad, obsessing over the things of this earth, we as joint heirs of Jesus need to obsess over the king and his kingdom. I don't know about you, but I grow weary of the news. I've gotten to a point where I can hardly watch it. Fox News alert. And then all of a sudden, you hear another depressing story of corruption, of deception, of violence, of, of some disaster. Don't you wish they would say, Fox News alert, the king is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again as he has promised. Oh my, that would throw the cat in amongst the pigeons, would it not? So folks, let's join David's song of praise. Remember, as he said in Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. In verse 12, he went on to say, I will make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so, dear friends, especially during this time, this Christmas season, we need to focus not only on the incarnation of the Son of God, but also on the fact that this same Jesus is coming again in power and in great glory to establish an earthly kingdom that will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. So let's rejoice and the birth of our Savior, but let's also fall down before him and worship him as our king. Let's anticipate his return with unhindered joy, and let's pray as we are commanded, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I wish to introduce our text in Luke's gospel by first examining one of many prophecies pertaining to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, a prophecy that was written 700 years before the Messiah, King Jesus, was even born, one that was inspired, uh, that the, the Holy Spirit inspired the prophet Micah to write, one that was literally and perfectly fulfilled in our text this morning in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, let me give you a brief overview, and I might warn you, this is going to be one of the longest introductions I've ever done. It will take most of our time together this morning, but it's very important for you to understand Luke 1. Let me give you a context here, a brief overview of Micah's prophecy. If we go back to 
the little book of Micah, we will see that he prophesied to the people about the impending doom for Judah because of their sin, Judah being the southern kingdom. But he told them that judgment is going to come not at the hands of the Assyrians, who were currently conquering the northern kingdom of Israel, but rather this judgment was going to come at the hand of the Babylonians. Well, this was absurd to the people, because at that time, Babylon was currently under the rule of Assyria. So they're thinking, how ridiculous. Of course, all Bible prophecy seems silly to sinful men. But we know that eventually that happened. And during Micah's day, Judah's economic prosperity and their military prowess, in fact, their military invincibility in that day, only masked their widespread corruption and their religious syncretism, which included, if you can imagine this, integrating the worship of the fertility cult god Baal with their Old Testament sacrificial system. Can you imagine anything any more blasphemous to the Most High God? But Micah's warning of judgment was followed with promises of great blessing, promises of hope to the faithful because of God's unchanging covenant to their forefathers when he would restore Israel, restore them spiritually and physically. For example, in Micah chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. A phrase in the Hebrew that refers to um, the great commotion that will occur due to the throng of people and a time of bustling activity and, and commerce. And the mention of both Jacob and Israel in that particular text indicates a, a reunited kingdom of Israel, something that was completely foreign to them in Micah's day, a time when the Lord himself will be their shepherd, protecting them and blessing them. And then if you go to chapters 3 through 5 of Micah, the prophet speaks again of these great blessings that will one day follow judgment, namely a kingdom for Israel that will bless all of the nations. For example, in in, in, um, Micah chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, And it will come about in the last days. Let me pause there. The phrase in the last day was an Old Testament phrase referring to to that future time period when God restores the nation of Israel, where Jerusalem with its temple will be the capital city of this kingdom. So he says, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. By the way, that's referring to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. It will be raised above the hills. In other words, somehow it's going to be elevated physically. And the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, as a footnote, this may help you understand the opposition that we see around the world today to this idea of the United States declaring Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. You must understand, and of course the people of the world don't understand this because they scoff at the Bible, but in reality there are two kingdoms in this world. In the providence of God, he has ordained to allow there to be the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And he is doing this temporarily to ultimately bring glory to himself as he one day, even today, reveals his attributes and puts them on display. And there are numerous passages of Scripture that inform us that God is going to place his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We read, for example, in Psalm 110, Beginning in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in verse 2, he says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. In other words, from Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Likewise, Psalm 132 affirms the forever nature of the Davidic covenant. In verse 13, he says, he says the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. And, of course, all of this is horribly insulting to Satan, who continues to thwart the purposes of God and endeavors to establish his kingdom upon this earth. He wants to um, destroy God's covenant people Israel. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to uh, claim the throne for himself. And so he is going to continue to do everything he can to prevent Jerusalem and Israel from ever doing anything consistent with what God has planned. And by the way, it would appear that he's very successful at this point because today you have uh, the Muslim shrine called the Dome of the Rock um, that is now on the site of the the former temple. And of course, Islam is is a satanic religion. Islam means surrender or submission. And Islam wants everyone to surrender or to submit to the will of Allah, which is Satan's counterfeit God of the one true God of the Bible. So naturally, Jerusalem, especially the Temple Mount, has been and will continue to be the most disputed piece of real estate on the planet because this is where the Lord is going to come and establish his throne upon the earth. Now, back to Micah's prophecy. In chapter 4, if we look at it, we see some very key pieces of information regarding this coming kingdom. We see, first of all, that Israel is going to be reunited and restored after judgment and after captivity. Secondly, we're going to see that God is going to establish um, his kingdom in Jerusalem. There's going to be a temple and it will function as the capital of the world. Israel's former enemies are going to come to Jerusalem to learn about Israel's God and and worship the Messiah King. And we read also that the Lord is going to rule over all of the nations. Warfare is going to cease, and peace and prosperity is going to prevail. 
And of course, these are prophecies consistent with all of the other prophecies that we see regarding these things in Scripture. But Micah told us something else very, very important. He told us where the Messiah King would be born. Micah chapter 5 in verse 2. Is your finger still there? But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Ephrathah, an, an insignificant little village, which, by the way, was merely the ancient name for Bethlehem used to distinguish it from other towns. And certainly this refers to Bethlehem, where David was born, 1 Samuel 17, verse 12. But why? Think about this. Why, of all places, would the Son of God choose to be born in such an insignificant little village, a few miles south of Jerusalem? Why wouldn't he be born in Rome? Why would he not be born in Jerusalem? Well, there's really two reasons, at least two reasons. First of all, you must remember that Bethlehem was a royal city in ancient days. And since Jesus was born the king of Israel, it was only fitting that he be born in the city where Israel's great king David had been born. You may recall that Over a thousand years before Jesus was born, God made an unconditional covenant with David. We read about it in 2 Samuel 7, promising him that that God would, would raise up from him a descendant, the Messiah King, who would establish David's kingdom forever, an eternal kingdom whereby the whole world would be blessed through the coming seed of David. But secondly... We see that Bethlehem's history has always been a picture of the coming Messiah. In fact, Bethlehem literally means house or place of bread. Bread, of course, is the symbol of life in Scripture, like the manna that came down from heaven that God supplied to feed his people in the wilderness. And didn't didn't Jesus say in John 6, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. So both life and death marked the history of Bethlehem. We read, for example, in Genesis chapter 35, that God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And he said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from you. The land which I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. And what's interesting is on the heels of that covenant, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, died in childbirth, and she was buried in Bethlehem. The Word of God says that he set up a pillar over her grave in Bethlehem. 
And that son's name was Benjamin. As Rachel was about to die, she named her son Ben-Onai, meaning son of my trouble. And of course, that was a divine harbinger of great trouble that would one day be inflicted upon the mothers that lived in the region of Bethlehem and their sons. You will remember years later, Herod would come along and kill all the little boys. Rachel's Benjamin now was one of Jacob's 12 sons, if you remember your Old Testament history. And eventually from Jacob's son Judah came King David. And ultimately the greater king, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear friends, it was Bethlehem where Rachel agonized in the birth of Benjamin. And that place became a symbol of the painful waiting of the sons of Israel for their promised Messiah. And as we look into Old Testament history, we also see that Rachel was the ancestress of the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh through Joseph and and Benjamin to the south. And when the Babylonians later came to carry them off into exile, the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said in Jeremiah 31:15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Furthermore, it was later then in Bethlehem where the enraged Herod slaughtered all the male children. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, according to verse 17, we read, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet that I was just quoting, the prophecy was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, when we move forward in biblical history, especially the history of Bethlehem, we have even more reasons for royal greatness being symbolized in Bethlehem. About 900 years after the days of Rachel, a Moabitess, journeyed to Bethlehem, and her name was Ruth. And you may recall that there she became a servant of a very wealthy man named Boaz. Boaz found her. He took her unto himself as his wife. And we see biblically that Boaz was a type of Christ, the one who became Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And Ruth was included in the physical lineage of the coming Messiah. We read about that in Matthew 1, verse 5. Boaz and Ruth then had a son whose name was Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who lived in, you guessed it, Bethlehem. And Jesse had a son whose name was David. So it should be no surprise that the son of David... The Messiah, King, would be born in the royal village just as Micah prophesied. 
And it should be no surprise that in the providence of God that Caesar Augustus would demand that there be a census taken, one that required everyone to be registered in the city of their birth. It should be no surprise, therefore, that Mary and Joseph would embark upon an 85-mile journey through treacherous terrain in an advanced stage of pregnancy to make their way to Bethlehem their tribal home in Judea. And while Scripture doesn't tell us this, and maybe I will get to ask them someday, no doubt on their journey, they were thinking in their mind about Micah's prophecy. And would this not be Mary's theme when she pondered what the shepherds told her? In the announcement that they received, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now back to Micah 5, 2 for a moment. Notice Micah also prophesied, from you one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. And indeed we know that that happened, right? The Father sent the Son John 5.36, Jesus said, The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And in John chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we read that Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So we can see that indeed the father sent his son to be the ruler in Israel. Now critics might say, well, then where is he? Certainly he's not ruling over Israel today. Everybody can see that. In fact, we know that he came into his own and his own received him not. They crucified their king, right? Well, all of that is true. Israel rejected their king. They crucified the Son of Man, but this was precisely according to God's plan. Remember at Pentecost, Peter said, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, dear friends, what the critic fails to understand is that Jesus, the Messiah King, had to come first as the Passover lamb. He had to first be the perfect And final sacrifice, who could make atonement for sin that we might be saved. And from the beginning of his earthly ministry, the Savior King preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And did he not also say, or did Pilate not also say to him in John 18, So, you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And of course, John the Baptist was the great herald of the king, the divinely appointed herald that said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Now, this he accomplished at his first coming. But his millennial reign on earth, awaits a 
future fulfillment when the king will return in all of his glory. So the full manifestation of the king and his kingdom has not been fully realized. We experience some of the spiritual blessings of it, but the physical blessings still await his coming. And during the interregnum, which is a term that refers to the interval between the king's first and his second coming, the kingdom has taken a form which he, he calls the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew thirteen eleven, referring to doctrinal truths not disclosed in the Old Testament that speak of the gospel and of the church. But make no mistake, dear friends, Christ is the, the king of Israel, as the prophets foretold. He is coming again, and one day, according to Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, notice what else the prophet Micah said about the one whom the father would send forth. He says that his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Fascinating statement. And Scripture, of course, bears this truth. We know, according to the Bible, that the pre-incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. He did this on a variety of occasions. For example, in Genesis 16, you will remember that he appeared to Hagar in the desert near a spring, and he commanded her to return back to Sarah. You will recall also in Genesis 18 that he appeared to Abraham where he promised him and his elderly wife, Sarah, a son. And that out of Abraham, quote, a great and a powerful nation would arise. All the nations on earth would be blessed through him and so forth. And then in Genesis 31, we read how he came to Jacob in a dream. And in chapter 32, we read how Jacob wrestled with him all night after which the Lord blessed him and changed his name to Israel. Then in Exodus 3, he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. In Joshua 5, he appeared to Joshua near Jericho, remember, with with a sword drawn in his hand. He appeared to Gideon then in Judges 6 and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then, of course, in that great story in Daniel 3, he appeared in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And now in Bethlehem, he appears again, as promised, the Son of God, who would willingly lay aside his glory to take on the form of a Jewish peasant child from Galilee, sent from the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of a virgin, the creator of the universe, coming into the world as a babe, laid in a manger. And from Bethlehem, he would eventually go to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he would go to Gethsemane. And from Gethsemane, he would go to Calvary. And from Calvary, he would ascend once again into glory where he is right now. And he's coming back again to Jerusalem. 
as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No wonder after Jesus' birth, an angel of the Lord announced his birth to a group of shepherds one night. Of, of, of all people, these lowly shepherds caring for sheep on the hills surrounding Jerusalem, an area where they grazed sheep that would be used for sacrifice in the temple. Little did they know that the birth of the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, had just occurred, and that they were these humble recipients of the angelic announcement. Remember in Luke 2, and beginning in verse 10, the angel says, Do not be afraid. And don't you know they were absolutely terrified? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, dear friends, with this prophetic background concerning Bethlehem, we come to Luke 2, where I wish to focus on three very intriguing concepts that emerge from this historical narrative. We're only going to be able to cover the first one today, We'll cover the others in future Sundays, but we want to look at, number one, Bethlehem's destiny. Secondly, Bethlehem's child. And finally, Bethlehem's manger. So let's look at Bethlehem's destiny as described in Micah 5 and verse 2. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, this is typically one of those verses that we read over and we never think much about. But it is absolutely packed with incredible insight that helps us understand what God was, is, and is up to through his Son, the Lord Jesus. It's fascinating to think how God and his providence caused certain things to happen during this predetermined time in history. Had he not done so, Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. Micah's prophecy would be unfulfilled, it would be considered false, and the word of God would be discredited. But none of that, of course, is true. So let's look at the context here. First, what about those days? Well, let's think about what was going on in those days. Well, first of all, we know that the covenant people of Israel, the covenant people of God, were scattered all over the Roman Empire. Essentially, the Romans owned them. They were merely their slaves. So the people were dejected. They were confused. They were deceived by their own leaders. They were longing for their promised Messiah, consistent with Abrahamic and Davidic covenants wanting him to come and deliver them. They weren't thinking about him delivering them from their sin. They wanted him to come and deliver them from Rome. And because of the idolatry and rebellion of their ancestors, God had not spoken to them directly 
for 400 years. We know, according to Ezekiel 11, that the brilliant, dazzling, ineffable light of the Shekinah that hovered over the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant between the outstretched arms of the cherubim, that Shekinah glory of God that once hovered there had departed from the temple. We read in Ezekiel 11, verse 23, the glory of the Lord, referring to that Shekinah, that dazzling light, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And as we go on to read Ezekiel's account, we see how it finally goes up over the Mount of Olives and goes up into glory, which will be exactly the route that Jesus takes in reverse when he comes again. So for 400 years, Ichabod was written across the door of the temple. Ichabod meaning the glory has departed. For 400 years, the Jews floundered around in ritualistic Judaism, filled with legalism and hypocrisy and, and frustration and sorrow, still awaiting the Messianic kingdom. And yet they're subjects of the Romans. And only a remnant of faithful worshipers of Yahweh still remained. Those who truly loved God with all their heart. So this was the days, those days of, of Roman occupation in Israel. Idolatrous, barbaric Gentiles. So unclean that the Jews would have no contact with them. These were also days when an insanely jealous Idumean king named Herod was the vassal king appointed by Rome to rule Judea, in which Bethlehem existed. He was an Idumean king. In other words, he was an Edomite. Uh, they, they were, by the way, the, the perennial enemies of God that we see traced all the way back in the Old Testament. In the times even of the Exodus, they hated the Israelites. And Herod, of course, would later slaughter all of the babies in that region in hopes to eliminate the rival to his throne when the, the Persian kingmakers came to worship the one they called the king of the Jews. So let's talk about these Persian kingmakers. You've heard me speak on this before. These were days as well when... The Parthian Empire, this was the land of the Medes and the Persians, which the Romans greatly feared. The Parthian Empire had deposed their king. He was nuts, if you read the history. He was insane. They got rid of him. They're looking for a new king that would come and help them conquer Rome. But kings of the Parthian Empire had to be chosen by the Magistoni. In other words, the Magi. The Magi were like the Levites to the Jews. The Magi were the priestly line of the Medes and the Persians. We read about them, for example, in Esther 1, 19, Daniel 6, verse 15. And they, they specialized in dream interpretation. The Magi, we know, rose to power through their demonic, occultic, astrological abilities. They were experts in sorcery and, and divination and astronomy and astrology that came out of that. And they became the advisors of the royalty of the East, and therefore they were known as the wise men. 
and they can be traced all the way back to the court of Nebuchadnezzar. You read about them in Daniel chapter 2. They were also called the Chaldeans or the magicians. And you will recall in that day, in the day of Nebuchadnezzar, um, they were unable to interpret the king's dream, and so he said, I, I just want to put them all to death. But Daniel came to the rescue. Daniel pleaded with the king in Daniel 2.24, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. I will declare the interpretation to the king, which he did. And then we know in, in chapter 5 that Nebuchadnezzar made him master over the Magi. It says that the king appointed him chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. So he became their new life savior. And Daniel at that point certainly had their undivided attention. And undoubtedly he taught them about Jehovah God, that, that he worshipped the coming Messiah. He taught them about Old Testament prophecy. And it's fascinating to think that some 600 years before Jesus was born, the sovereign grace of God reaches into the hearts of some of these magi in Nebuchadnezzar's court through Daniel. That Daniel would have been able to offer them a message of hope and forgiveness of sins that would someday come through Emmanuel, that God would be with us. That the glorious presence of God would, would one day come and once again be seen in the world. A light that would shine out of Judah. No doubt he, he reminded them of the prophecy in Numbers chapter 24 verse 17 that a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star in Hebrew, a koshav, a blazing forth is going to come forth from Jacob. A scepter, a king, is going to come from Israel. So obviously, they were looking for that blazing forth of light, and when they saw it many years later, those that were alive, they knew what to do. They knew that they had to go to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem. Now, because Rome was afraid of that eastern empire across the west Arabian desert. They did everything they could to protect themselves from them. And this is what makes it really interesting when you think of the magi that came to Herod. You see, again, they were violent enemies, Rome and the Parthian Empire. They fought in 63, 55, and 40 BC. And of course, they always fought on the coast of the Mediterranean in Syria, in Jordan, in Palestine, the land of Israel. And so this tiny little place that we know today as Israel was really a no-man's land between two great powers. Now bear in mind, the Romans especially despised and feared these sorcerers, these astrologers. So in the miracle of divine providence, 600 years later, A group of magi, these kingmakers, see a blazing light in the east, a koshav, a blazing forth. Not a star like you hear people say and you see on Christmas cards and all that silly stuff. Now, jumping ahead for a moment, 
To build further context, you will remember in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi. Behold, by the way, means look at this. This is unbelievable. Behold, magi, it says, from the east arrived in Jerusalem. We know historically that they traveled in a large contingency. They would have had uh, a, a group of elite soldiers with them and a vast caravan to supply them. So all of a sudden, the Persian kingmakers coming, come into Jerusalem. Now, if you're Herod the king, what are you thinking? Oh, my goodness. So verse 2, Herod says, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Actually, these are the Magi. They're saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. In Greek, the austere. We saw a blazing forth of light, a blazing, a shining in the east. And when Herod, verse 3, the king heard it, he was troubled. The term troubled gives you the, 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 the idea in the original language of, of quaking. We would say that he was quaking in his boots. His knees were shaking. He was thrown into confusion. Herod the king heard it. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. By the way, what makes this even more fascinating is during this time, Herod's troops were out on a mission, so they were all the more vulnerable. I I, I absolutely believe God has a sense of humor with these things. He's setting this whole thing up. So terrified by all of this, Herod schemes against God and consults with his emissaries of Satan that served him, which were called the chief priests and scribes, right? He consults with them in verse 4, and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, where? In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been, been written by the prophet, quoting Micah 5, 2. It says they began to inquire. Grammatically, in the original language, it speaks of constantly asking. I mean, they're on a search and destroy mission now. I mean, they're, it's an all-points bulletin. They're doing everything they can to find out where this king is born. Find that child. No doubt there were hourly briefings going on. It's a panic in the royal court and in the city. Beloved, can't you just see God's providence working in all of this? I hope you can. And I can't tell you how many things I'm leaving out. But just to see how then in the providence of God, he he is orchestrating all of this so that the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Savior would come into this world. So back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. We read, now, it came about in those days. Now, you know what those days were, right? That's what was going on historically. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. In other words, throughout the Roman Empire. And, of course, the census provided a record for the purpose of collecting taxes. And uh, they were to be uh, taken every 14 years. But notice in verse 2, it says... This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor. In other words, he was a leader. He was a person of authority. He was governor of Syria. 
which, by the way, was the name of the region in which Judea existed in that day. Now, it's, it's interesting. And again, this is one of those passages we tend to read over and don't pay any attention to. But the Spirit of God put that there for a very important purpose. Luke is very specific. This was the first census taken. In other words, the first 14-year cycle when Quirinius was governor. Now, why is this so important? Well, because we know that the second census that was taken while Quirinius was governor resulted in a violent Jewish rebellion that Luke mentions in Acts 5.37, quoting Gamaliel. In fact, the great uh, Jewish historian Josephus describes that uprising. So when did that second census occur? Well, we know that it occurred somewhere between A.D. 6 and A.D. 9. But that census occurred about a decade after Herod's death in 4 B.C. So if you do the math, since we know a census was taken every four years or 14 years, and the second census was taken in A.D. 6 to 9, we simply back up 14 years to determine the date of the first census that Luke describes, which would have been around 8 B.C. And it would appear that it was finally carried out and completed in Palestine about two to four years later. See, they they couldn't just do a census online, all right? These things took time. Those living in Luke's day would have had a very accurate understanding of all this. And it's also interesting that a fragment of stone discovered near Rome in 1764 contains strong evidence that Quirinius was governor of Syria twice, which would affirm uh, Luke's account. So somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem. Not 0 A.D., somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. But back to the text in verse 3. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Again, this is fascinating because the Jews absolutely despised being taxed. I mean, we don't like it either. But it's a, you know, we can live with it because we do want to have good roads and, and, uh, free healthcare, right? And free everything else. And, but we do want to be protected. And we, but, but they hated being taxed. And, but normally the Romans would allow their citizens to register wherever they currently resided. But for reasons that we don't fully understand historically, Mary and Joseph travel approximately 85 miles to register in Bethlehem rather than Nazareth. Now, why? Well, we can't be dogmatic, but we can deduce some very compelling hypotheses. Bear in mind, first of all, that the Jews highly honored their ancestry. And they, they have historically, even to this day, kept scrupulous records. We know, for example, that when they entered the promised land, every tribe was allotted a specific region of land, and each family was forever linked to that tribe and to that region. And you'll see this borne out someday in the kingdom. They kept meticulous genealogical records, and every seven years the land would be returned to the original owners to maintain that ancestral ownership. 
So perhaps what motivated Mary and Joseph to return to Bethlehem was this very thing. Perhaps this is why um, Herod required uh, them to uh, so to do this so that he could keep track of the families. Uh, perhaps they own some land in Bethlehem. We're not sure. But whatever the reason, it must have been very important, important enough for Mary and Joseph to make such a strenuous and, and dangerous trip all the way to Bethlehem, just as Micah prophesied, exactly as God had ordained. Back to Luke, verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was with child. Again, very important for you to bear in mind here. And the genealogy of Jesus that Luke supplies in chapter 3, we learn that Mary was a physical descendant of David. Thus, her ancestry linked him to the city of David where the Savior was born. Because of his physical connection to Mary, he was therefore the legitimate heir or had the the legitimate right to the throne. Matthew's genealogy is very different, however. It supplies Jesus' legal, not his physical, claim to, to royalty, to the throne. Through the royal bloodline, through Joseph, who was Jesus' legal, not, not his natural father. God was the father. But Joseph was his, his legal father. And of course, through Joseph, the Lord Jesus is linked all the way back to Abraham back to the Abrahamic covenant, back to the Davidic covenant. Therefore, Jesus is described in verse 1 of chapter 1 as the son of David. Folks, think about the staggering accuracy of the word of God. Think about the literal fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Think about the impact that this should have on our lives. Think about the fact that we have the inspired word of God. Think about how our sovereign God rules in the hearts of men, in the hearts of rulers, without them having any idea that they are somehow pawns on his chessboard. This would include President Trump, Putin, Kim Jong-un, or whatever his name is, all these people. They have no idea what's really going on. They have no idea that there is a plan of redemptive history that was set in motion before anything was ever even created. And there is nothing that can thwart that plan. Think about, dear friends, how God is working in you right now. How he's working in your family in ways that you may not realize it. In your marriage, in your children, in your job. Working in ways that you can't fathom. You hear me say almost every Sunday, it's not by accident that you're here today. 
You are going to hear the word today. You have heard the word today. And we know biblically that the word's always going to do one of two things. It will either harden or soften hearts. And that's up to God. So, folks, let all of this drive you to your face and humble adoration of not just our Savior, but our King. And I want to close with this challenge. In Colossians 3, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that when Christ is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in glory. An amazing thought. Revelation 19 explains this even more. And in 1 John 3 and verse 2, John says that, that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. You see, right now, we couldn't see him just as he is. We'd, we'd be incinerated. We will be like him and we will see him just as he is. And then he says this, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Folks, in closing this morning, do you have this hope fixed on him? I hope you do. A purifying hope that causes you to live a life in reality of the coming king and the reality that you are being conformed into his likeness and ultimately you will be like him. Does this cause you to want to be more like him now? That's the point. Oh, I hope it does. And if it doesn't, there is something terribly wrong with your profession of faith. I hope that this causes you to say with Paul, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what is that goal? What is that upward prize? It is Christ likeness to ultimately be conformed into his glory oh dear friends I hope that this Christmas season it will be a time when you reflect upon these great truths and again if this is not the passionate desire of your, of your heart to be more like Christ then I would submit to you that your profession of faith is without basis and you need to examine yourself And if it is your heart, then you will rejoice knowing that the king is coming, right? That Jesus is coming again. Dear friends, he came the first time in humility, but he's coming again in glory. He came the first time riding upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. But he is coming again on the war horse, a white horse that symbolizes the power of a conquering king. He came the first time as a lamb that opened not his mouth. But he is coming the second time as the lion of Judah. He came the first time in utter obscurity. But when he comes again, no one will miss him. He came the first time, and there was no room for him in the inn. But when he comes the second time, his presence, the glory of his Shekinah, 
will fill the universe. Folks, either you believe these things or you don't. If you know Christ, we believe these things by faith because of the word of God. And because of this, we can bow before him in adoring worship and faith and sing with sincerity. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in... And now you know the significance of that magnificent lyric and that magnificent truth in Scripture. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, these are such exhilarating truths to those of us who you have caused to be born again. You've made us new creatures in Christ. And because of this, because of the power of your indwelling spirit, your word is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It causes us to understand the great mysteries of the universe, not because of our intellect, but Lord, because of a transformed heart. And for this, we give you praise. But with all that we have examined here today, I pray that no one will leave here without knowing with absolute certainty that Jesus is Lord and that he is coming again. Therefore, we need to be ready and we need as believers to live in light of his glorious return. So, Lord, as Jesus has asked us to do, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.